It is possible that a car shall be made that will move with inestimable speed, and the motion will be without the help of any living creature. It is possible that a device for flying shall be made such that a man sitting in the middle of it and turning a crank will cause artificial wings to beat the air after the manner of a bird's flight. Well, welcome to Like Flint Radio. I'm your host, GK. You can find us on the web at www.likeflintradio.com. If you want to email me, you can email me at gk at likeflintradio.com. That's all lowercase, gk at likeflintradio.com. In this episode, I'm speaking once again to Dr. James Hanneman about his book, God's Philosophers, How the Medieval World Laid the Foundations of Modern Science. Now, you might want to go back into our archives at likeflintradio.com and listen to episode 24, which is the episode where I first spoke to James, as this episode you're about to listen to is very much a part two to the first one and contains very little background material about James and his book, but rather dives right into some topics that we did not cover in show 24. So here's my second interview with Dr. James Hannum. Okay, so welcome back to Like Flint Radio, Dr. James Hannum. Thank you very much for having me back. I appreciate you uh, giving us the time, uh, James. Thanks very much. Um, Now, since we've just advised our listeners that this is part two of our conversation about your book, and uh, they should go back and listen to our earlier conversation, um, why don't we just jump right into it? One of the things that I like about your approach in this book is that you might start out a chapter with a hypothetical scenario, uh, like a a peasant with a headache, and then you will tell us what his options were in the Middle Ages. And then you will explore the topic of, say, medicine in general. And then what I like is you will hone in on one or two uh, individuals and um, one of these, one or two of these God's philosophers. So if we can first turn to the topic of uh, medicine, I'd like to begin by reading just a little bit from your book about Bernard of Trevis' son, The other thing is, James, before we get too much into this, I'm going to have to uh, get your advice on some of the pronunciations of our characters. Uh, (laughs) My French, Spanish and anything but Australian English is rather terrible. (laughs) Well, I I have to admit that I don't know how to pronounce all the words either, so uh, (laughs) it's easier to write them down. I I, I since have learnt that I I believe Gerbert is actually Gerbert. Is that right? Well, if if you want to use the French pronunciation, that, that... think would be correct but um <laughs> he's probably a well enough known character right uh, um, at least among, among historians to be allowed to uh to use a, an english pronunciation of his name one, one of the other characters who comes who comes um rather mm. later in the book who, that you may recall was uh, jerome carden yes 
Um, that's the English uh, pronunciation for Giolamo Cardano. Okay, all right. Um, okay, but all he right. was such a famous figure during the 16th century that um, he um, was given an English name by by English authors. So right. if you see him right. mentioned in 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 a in a, uh, a 16th century English book, he's always called Jerome rather than um, Cardano. It's a bit like we we call um, um, Michelangelo Michelangelo, but I think the Italians call him something slightly different. Right. There is another character that we're going to be talking about uh, shortly, and um, I'm going to get you to help me pronounce his name. But let's start off with Bernard here. And I just want to read a little little part here and then ask you a question about this. Uh, Bernard of Treveson laid out the essence of the microcosm-macrocosm dichotomy. When that which is above is made by that which is below, he explains, and that which is below is like that above, then miraculous occurrences will from thence appear. And then you go on to say, everything on earth, the healer believed, had some sort of correspondence with something in the heavens. If you could figure out what these correspondences were, then you could use them for healing and magic. Now, um... Can you tell us about that? I just sort of read that to set the background to what I wanted to talk about this uh, this dichotomy. So, can you give us a little bit of a background of the bigger picture of uh, medicine in the Middle Ages, and then can we talk about this dichotomy of macrocosm and microcosm? Because I think that will help people understand what the thought and way of uh, thinking was in the Middle Ages uh, in the area of medicine. Well, um. There were several different strands of medicine in the Middle Ages, um, and uh, I suppose the one that's most familiar to us um, is the uh, the strand which um, originates with the ancient Greeks um, and the uh, the ancient Greek uh, physicians like uh, Hippocrates and, and Galen of Pergamon, um, and that was sort of the learned strand. That was the the strand of medicine that that you'd be dealing with if you were pretty wealthy and you could go and actually afford a professional doctor, a doctor who'd been trained at the universities um, to become um, a, a qualified physician who uh, would know all the all the big books from uh, ancient Greece and from the, the, the Muslim world on, on how medicine was supposed to work. Uh, and he would have had years of training and, and he would uh, uh, really be a very, very respected member um, of, of the community. Um, and, and possibly even even quite a wealthy person due to his profession. Um, and, and learning medicine um, in the Middle Ages really only had one drawback, um, and that was that it didn't work at all. And it was quite remarkable that although these learned doctors were completely incapable of um, making you uh, better any faster than you were going to be able to get better on your own, and indeed some of the treatments like bleeding were likely to actually uh, harm you rather than help you, um, they still managed to um, maintain their professional prestige right the way through the Middle Ages and into the early modern period, and indeed all the way up to the 19th century when doctors were finally able to actually uh, um, heal us rather than, than harm us. Um, but that being the case, the fact that, that learned doctors um, were not unambiguously uh, good um, at, at healing and were indeed really quite expensive meant, meant that there was room um, for other strands of healing, and, and, and one of those strands was um, what we commonly call natural magic. Um, and natural magic meant um, magic which uh, was embedded in, in, in the natural world, and, and the microcosm-macrocosm dichotomy was, was a very good example of that. So this wasn't magic which was being uh, um, 
involving uh, summoning demons and, and, and using evil spirits or good spirits, anything like that. It was really um, magic which sort of um, understood that there were hidden forces in the world which you could you could harness. And, and examples of those hidden forces um, might, for instance, be, um, be magnetism, which uh, is obviously something that we still um, accept today, which is, which is part of modern science. And, and people thought, well, if magnetism exists, then surely there are lots of other hidden forces we might be able to use. Um, but they needed to identify these, these hidden forces. And um, the microcosm, macrocosm idea was, was really a way of, of trying to identify um, which of the, um, the, the, the natural forces of natural magic might be most helpful. And a good example um, might be um, that uh, if, if you wanted uh, to, to heal a broken heart, say, you, you would know that uh, the goddess of love was Venus and thus the planet Venus um, was important for uh, uh, human relationships. Um, and you would associate Venus with um, various things on Earth. For example, the metal copper was, was associated with Venus. Um, so you might make a charm out of copper um, and uh, you might make it at a time when, when Venus was, was in the sky, and you would hope that you'll get enough um, macroscopic and microscopic associations uh, into your work that you were um, able to produce the, the desired effects. Um, and although I suppose it's fairly obvious to us that none of this was actually going to do any good, um, that really just meant it was in exactly the same boat as learned medicine. And in fact, unlike learned medicine, it was less likely to cause you harm and was a good deal cheaper. Right, because I was, I was going to say, and, and uh, thank you for carrying the thing about the planets, because that was going to be my, uh, my next question. But I was going to say that um, uh, you, you explained that a doctor would take a patient's history, uh, things like the vital signs and, uh, and things like that, but, um, and maybe even prescribe bed rest or whatever. Uh, then if they gave them any sort of medicinal help, like a herb or something, the main idea was to make them vomit. That was one, that was, um, one thing that... Uh, um, doctors were often trying to do um, and, and, and the background to that was that uh, um, ancient Greek learned medicine postulated that there were four humours in the human body um, and these four humours were uh, blood, uh, phlegm, black bile and yellow bile and any kind of illness was, was, was assumed to be some sort of imbalance of the humours and you would uh, examine the, the patient's symptoms in order to try and determine which of the humours was, was out of balance. Um, and if, for instance, uh, a patient was, um, was cold and clammy, um, you'd assume that there was a, an excess of, of, of phlegm, and you, you might therefore um, want the, the, the patient to, um, say, vomit up the excess. Uh, if the, uh, the patient was, uh, was hot uh, and wet, i.e. they had a fever, um, you would associate that with an excess of blood, and thus um, you you would try and bleed the patient in order to uh, um, alleviate the symptoms. Um, and of course, because um, fever is is a symptom of an awful lot of different illnesses, bleeding was was an extremely um, common um, common treatment, um, which of course um, almost certainly was going to do no good at all if it didn't actually harm the patient. No, that's right. And um, I also uh, learnt from your book. Uh, that it was quite clear that um, perhaps uh, astrology was also used in that they would um, at times use a patient's uh, horoscope uh, to understand what a patient's medical history was about. And um, to that end, I wanted to switch to talking a little bit about astrology. 
um, in the Middle Ages. And uh, I wanted to read a quote from Thomas Aquinas. Uh, He says here, If anyone attempts from the stars to foretell future contingent or chance events, or to know with certitude future activities of men, he's acting under a false and groundless presumption and opening himself to the intrusion of diabolical powers. Consequently, this kind of fortune-telling is superstitious and wrong. But if someone uses astronomic observations to forecast future events which are actually determined by physical laws, for instance, drought and rainfall and so forth, then this is neither superstitious nor sinful. Um, So we know that astrology played a big part in the life of those living during the Middle Ages. Um, And like I said, uh, a horoscope formed a part of a patient's history when, when visiting a doctor. And many princes and the like also used astrologers to guide some of this, some of their decisions With this in mind, and taking what we've just read here from Thomas Aquinas, was astrology, just in general, seen as a legitimate science at the time, um, akin now to how we might see astronomy? Were they differentiated between those two? Well, I I think there was, um, as as you you saw from the the quotation from Mm. from Thomas Aquinas, there was uh, a divide between um, astrologers who said that the stars determined the future and particularly determined the way that humans behaved. Um, and that, as far as the, the church was concerned, was, was forbidden because it suggested that we didn't have free will and it wasn't um, possible for us to um, decide whether we were going to do, do uh, right or wrong. Um, and astrologers who um, thought that the stars were influential but they weren't determinative um, for instance, um, it wasn't particularly controversial to say um, that if you were born under a certain star, you might um, have um, a, a predilection towards certain kinds of behaviour. Um, very much, um, I suppose, in a way that today we say that um, our, our genes can influence us, um, but they don't determine precisely um, how we're going to how we're going to behave. Um, and that was um, generally thought um, during the Middle Ages to be um, a, a legitimate theory. Um, and uh, astrologers, which, uh, as, as Aquinas mentioned, um, simply used astrology to try and um, determine um, sort of um, long-term natural events like um, the weather or um, uh, like uh, harvests, that sort of thing. They, they were um, probably um, not... Uh, considered terribly controversial at all. Um, the trouble was that uh, astrologers themselves often had a, a more refined idea of what astrology was able to achieve than, than the, the wider population. And, and um, in particular, um, I suppose many astrologers uh, were quite keen on the idea that astrology really could tell the future. It certainly was a good way of um, uh, making money if they uh, suggested that that was something that they could do. Um, and where we we see um, some some conflicts between uh, uh, astrology and church, it's very much cases where um, the astrologers are saying that uh, um, the stars actually determine um, our behaviour. And if you get astrology right, you can you can predict the future and say exactly what's going to happen. And the church always said, well, that that's not right because people always maintain um, their free will to make their own decisions. Yes, that's right. And um, this brings us to one of the characters 
that I wanted to talk about. And remember, I I said to you uh, not not more than ten minutes ago about pronunciation of uh, of names. But um, I wanted to talk about is it Checo Diascoli? Would we call him Checo or? Um, I think uh, Checo would be would Kecho. be fine. Checo. Checo Diascoli, I yeah. think. Now, but, uh, now would that be that- a diminutive of Francesco or something? Is it? That's right, yes. Okay. <laughs> I knew I was going to struggle with that one uh, the moment I read it. Um, anyway, I'll just read a little bit about your uh, about him and then I'll, we can talk about him a bit. But um, the, uh, in your book you say that the medieval church repeatedly attacked determinism, you've just told us that, and defended the concept of free will. No one would be in any doubt that it was not merely wrong to say that we cannot escape our destiny it was heretical. Inevitably, some astrologers would toe the line and one or two galloped imperiously across it. Uh, Francesco Diascoli, because that's what I'm going to call him, a lecturer on astronomy at the University of Bologna, was one of these. Um, can you tell us a little bit about him? Because in your book, you talk about uh, the terrible fate of our friend Diascoli. Well, um, Cacho, as you say, was a... Uh, um uh, an astrologer at the University of Bologna, and he was definitely one of the astrologers who thought that the stars determined the future. Um, and he took that to the ultimate extreme. He thought uh, that even even God himself was was bound by the stars. Um, and he started to to speculate that um, the reason, for instance, that that um, Jesus um, uh, had the life he had and was was born into um, a, a poor family and and uh, um, suffered uh, obviously his his terrible death on the cross was that he was born under the wrong stars, um, and as far as uh, um, the church, indeed, I suppose anyone of decent opinion in the Middle Ages was concerned, that was that was an absolutely outrageous thing to say to say that uh, um, God Himself was was actually subject right. uh, to the right. stars. And uh, when when um, perhaps some jealous colleagues of his um, reported him to um, the local inquisitor. Um, he did immediately get into a, a lot of trouble over this. Um, you might think, uh, as, as a lot of people do, that uh, even somebody who was uh, responsible for, for such a terrible heresy would probably be dragged to the nearest stake immediately. But in fact, uh, Keto was, was given the opportunity to, to recant. He was given a hefty fine. He was told to desist from, from astrology. Um, but uh, he wasn't uh, um, actually... Um, executed um for his for his first offense uh, he was he was effectively uh, given a second chance to to uh, show that he, he understood the error of his ways um but unfortunately for him um, he then left bologna and, and traveled south to florence and um um then he just immediately got up to all his old tricks um and uh the the florentine inquisitor um soon um, became aware of what he was up to um and when he heard that um Ketia had already um, had a run-in with the Inquisitor in Bologna and that he'd been um, uh, confessed uh, what, what he'd been doing and he'd promised never to do it again. Um, he became a, a recalcitrant uh, second offender heretic. Uh, and, and at that point, really, um, he really was um, was doomed as far as the church was concerned because although um, heretics were always given a second chance um, if, if they admitted that they were wrong, um, repeat offenders uh, were, were really given um, no mercy at all. And so... Um, once it was established that that he'd gone back to his old ways and was continuing uh, his, his his heresy over um, how God was subject to the stars and carrying on with his um, kind of fortune telling astrology, he was uh, 
um, handed over to the secular arm and, and, and burnt at the stake in Florence um, um, in, I think, 1327, for memory. Right, yes. And um, I, I noticed that, too, it, uh, you, in the story uh, that you tell about him, that when they caught him, caught up with him the second time, it did take some time uh, for the case to uh, come to conclusion because the Inquisitor... Uh, sent for his records are uh, very thorough in what they did at the time, weren't they? It wasn't just uh, a matter of grabbing somebody and, and piling up some timber routing and, and throwing, you know, a match to it. They they were thorough in what they did. Well, I think it's interesting that um, um, the Inquisition um, was actually first introduced um, by the church um, because they were concerned, the church was concerned, um, that, that heresy trials were not being uh, run according to due process that there was no proper investigation of crimes and and um, there were there were had been various lynchings in 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 uh, Germany for instance and um, so the the introduction of the Inquisition was an attempt by the church to actually put sort of formal rules of evidence into um, into play so that at least by the standards of the time um, the Inquisition was was probably at the the cutting edge of um, of uh, evidential law enforcement, and in fact, um, <clears throat> even today, um, the um, the criminal justice system in central um, in in continental Europe, admittedly not in in the UK and, and America, uh, but in continental Europe, is still um, the direct um, descendant of the uh, the medieval Inquisition. It was uh, felt to be such a good system that it was used by secular governments as well and, and, and is used to this day. Right. But um, just a general question about uh, uh, horoscopes. Did the mathematics used at the time in the formation of horoscopes um, and the like, um, did that benefit the mathematicians of the early modern or modern age? Did, did we Are we still making use of um, building on top of what those, those people knew and learnt back then? Well, I think the importance of astrology for for um, for modern science was that it provided really the the most important market for for astronomy. So astronomy was, as you say, um, the, the the mathematical yeah. um, calculation of where the where the stars and planets were going to be. Um, and uh, if you wanted to go to all the trouble to do those calculations, you needed to do uh, you needed a good reason to do it. And astrology really was the the only reason, um, apart from curiosity, that that it was worth precisely calculating where the stars um, and planets um, were, were going to be on a, on a given day. So astrology, if you like, provided a, a market and probably provided quite a lot of the resources um, which uh, um, were used in 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 astronomy. Um, and indeed. Uh, Right up until um, the 17th century, when when astrology was was still was fairly big business, it was the main market for um, astronomical tables, um, and uh, certainly the the work of uh, Copernicus and, and Galileo and and Kepler um, was um, commercially at its most important um, because astrologers were were buying their tables. Um, I mean, we often talk today about calendar reform, um, but that was just just well, sort of one. Um, one instance of, of how astronomy um, could be useful. I, I think it's, it's sort of forgotten that astrology was, was the main reason that, that astronomy was um, worth doing.
much of the chapter in your book that discusses astrology also discusses alchemy, but I think we will leave some things for the readers for themselves to discover. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, Roger Bacon and the science of light. I like I liked reading about Bacon. I find him a fascinating character. Um, you know, uh, he's the guy who makes the first reference to gunpowder in the West. And also uh, he talks about flying machines and horseless carriages at some stage in the future. So I find him very, very fascinating. But um, can you give us some background about Roger Bacon, and then we can get into some more, some more specifics of uh, what he done. Well, well, Bacon um, was was an English uh, Franciscan friar um, who taught at Oxford University and, and the University of Paris, um, and it was uh, it was an original thinker. Um, he was uh, extraordinarily um, uh, devout, uh, even by the standards of the day. Um, and indeed, um, it may well have been that that um, his uh, al- almost uh, um, ascetic um, devotion um, actually got into some trouble um, later on in his life because um, he was associated with uh, a branch of Franciscans who believed in absolute poverty, um, which unfortunately wasn't something which went down terribly well with um, all of their superiors um, who were getting quite used to the fact that although they'd um, made a vow of poverty, they were living really to be comfortably on everybody's donations. Um, and it occasionally said that Bacon um, was in prison for his, his uh, scientific ideas, um, but, but actually, as far as uh, modern scholars are concerned, there's very little evidence for that at all. And if he was um, imprisoned, it probably was due to his, um, his radical um, ideas about um, asceticism and um, poverty rather than anything he had to say about science. And Bacon's interest in science was really driven by um, his belief that um, science could be used um, as a way to promote uh, an enhanced missionary activity. He um, uh, believed that the end of the world was coming like a, like a lot of um, Franciscans of, of, of his kind. Um, and he wanted, uh, he wanted the Pope to um, authorise a, a great... Uh, um, conversion of the world, in particular the Muslim world, and he wanted to persuade the Pope that uh, that science was a really useful tool um, to help um, help with this missionary activity. So, as far as he was concerned, science and, and indeed um, even even the inventions that, that he mentions were all um, simply aids for spreading Christianity before the the imminent apocalypse. And, and that's what I find uh, very fascinating about him, because as you said, you know, he was concerned that the end of the world was coming to an end. And um, he was keen to see the conversion of the Jews and the Muslims before that happened. Um, why was it a popular idea at that time that the world was coming to an end? Why did he think that? Well, um, it's actually been something um, which, which has been part of a, an awful lot of cultures through history, isn't it? Uh, and, and indeed, it's yes. something we even sort of continue to believe today with our panics over global warming and, and such absolutely, like. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so really nothing changes in that respect. It's just uh, sort of the nature of the apocalypse is brought up to date. So... I think I think Bacon um, probably got most of his apocalyptic ideas, of course, from the, from the Book of Revelation in, in the Bible, and there's obviously uh, always been this long tradition of trying to reinterpret the Book of Revelation as, uh, to explain exactly when the apocalypse was actually going to happen. Um, off, off the top of my head, I don't know if Roger Bacon had a particular date in mind, but he certainly did have this sense of urgency 
Um, and that, that's a sense of urgency, I suppose, which, which uh, has, has been a part of at least some strands of Christianity um, uh, since the very beginning. Right, right, right. Now, now like I say, I find him a fascinating character. Um, what is this idea of divine light? Well, for Bacon, he could see uh, that there were um, correspondences, if you like, between between physical light, which, which is uh, something which he studied and, and he brought together the best uh, works from the from the Arab world and and, and disseminated them uh, through Europe with his, with his compilation um, and and divine light, which is very much a Franciscan idea, something he had got from uh, Robert Grostest, who, who may well um, have been uh, his teacher, although we don't know know for sure that they they actually knew each other, and that was really trying to um, understand. Um, the action of God through an analogy, if you like, with with physical lights, so a divine illumination um, could could be understood in in a similar sort of way to um, to physical um, illumination, and of course, light itself, which was something which was was deeply mysterious um, to um, to Bacon and Grosseteste, and um, was, was something that that seemed to have sort of some kind of uh, um, divine um, characteristic itself, in that it did. Um, illuminate the world that enabled us to see things that, that obviously we wouldn't be able to see otherwise. So the, the thinking was, was, was partly, I suppose, one of analogy and, and partly one of, of trying to better understand the action of God by understanding the way um, that light works physically. Right. Now, also, um, Bacon's uh, associated with the idea of, of the telescope. And um, I'd like to read a bit from your book, just so our listeners can get a uh, get a bit of a uh, understanding of uh, your writing style and why it, uh, it's interesting, and, and why out of all the characters in your book, I guess I'm I'm most keen on on Roger Bacon, if that's not uh, quite clear by now. But um, so, reading from your book, on a more positive note, Robert Record, an important Tudor mathematician and writer, credited Bacon with the invention of a glass in which men might see things that were done in other places. This sounds like magic. But Record went on to explain that Bacon had used his knowledge of optical theory and natural philosophy to build the glass. In fact, Bacon never says he actually produced such a device, but he did suggest that it was possible to do so. From an incredible distance, we might see the smallest letters, he wrote. So also might we cause the sun, moon, and stars to descend in appearance here below, and similarly to appear above the heads of our enemies. Nevertheless, Record's comment certainly proves that the idea of the telescope had been around long before it was officially invented in 1608. So um, he's a, it's a very well written, uh, it's very interesting, and it kind of draws you in, uh, and you can see how people can um, take a thing that's maybe said out of context uh, and, and misunderstand it, but when it's put into context, you could sort of understand. He wasn't talking about uh, magic or looking into a crystal ball. He possibly, very very possibly was talking about what we now call the telescope. So um, that's why I find him fascinating, and I really enjoyed that chapter. And uh, if you get if you get the book, I think that's one of the chapters I think others will enjoy. Um, moving on to more broader uh, items, James. I think we may have discussed this a little bit in our first uh, interview, but was God excluded from science during the Middle Ages? And my secondary question, and we can take it piece by piece if you like, but 
Do you believe that he's excluded now? So let's start with, was he excluded from science during the Middle Ages? Well, no, no, not at all. Science during the Middle Ages was explicitly the study of God's creation. Um, And that was the point of doing science in the Middle Ages, that you were uh, thinking God's thoughts after him. You were looking at his handiwork. Uh, And that was at the back of everybody's mind when they were looking at the the natural world they they knew where the natural world had come from and they wanted to know what the natural world um told us um about god uh, and that was part of the reason that um if you wanted to study theology in the middle ages you you had to study science and maths before you you were allowed to start studying theology because it gave a background um in in uh, one one of the central parts of of god's god's work one of the the two books god had written the other of course being being the bible which you studied as a theologian mm. so medieval science was was explicitly i think religious but it wasn't religious in practice which is to say that um god wasn't an explanation uh, that was used in medieval science except of course as the ground of of everything so god was the first primary cause of, of all things that happened. Um, but science was interested in discovering uh, what we call secondary causes, um, which uh, were essentially the, the natural laws that, that God had laid down when he created the world. So if you, as a, as a medieval scientist, wanted to um, understand uh, how um, the planets move, for instance, um, you wouldn't say uh, that angels were pushing them. That that would be um, something that uh, um, would um, not be a, a valid natural secondary cause. You would look for um, the way that God had made the universe, which meant that the planets moved in a way that they did. And uh, as, as one 14th century medieval scientist, Jean Biodin, um, said that uh, well, God made um, made the heavens without any friction. So uh, once the the planets had started moving at the beginning of time, because there was no friction, they continued moving on their courses forever. Because that was the way that that God had made the universe. He had he had set out the rules in it when when um, the creation has happened, and and nature was thus un- unfurling itself according to um, th- those rules which had been laid down. Um, so that meant that um, science, um, as it was actually practiced, wasn't something which concerned itself with with miracles. Jean Biodin said, well, obviously God can do miracles if he wants to, but that's not really the business of us scientists. We're interested in the we interested in the ordinary course of nature. We're not interested in what happens when God feels he has to step in um, and act directly. So if you like uh, what today we call a methodological naturalism, uh, was was already to some extent alive and well um, in the Middle Ages because doing science was a question of, of trying to understand these secondary natural causes rather than trying to understand things in terms of the the direct action um, of God. Right. And I suppose what's happened with modern science is that we've kept this this methodological naturalism, but we've dropped the idea to a very great extent um, about of, of where. Um, these laws that we're all exploring um, actually came from for for Christian and early mod- sorry, for medieval and early modern scientists it was obvious that the ultimate source of everything was God. Um, nowadays we're sort of um, well we sort of don't ask that question in science we just sort of stop at the Big Bang and 
Um, after that, I think we, we're, we're able to make our own minds up. And as Christians, of course, we do think continue, continue to think that, that God created the universe. Um, and we think generally, I think that uh, he did it through certain certain natural processes that, that he ordained. But they um, have become um, separated, I think, from, from, from science itself, which has gone from perhaps being using a, using a, a, a method of naturalism to having a, a philosophy of naturalism as well, which perhaps is stepping uh, a little bit beyond the bounds of what science can actually say. Right. No, um, uh, thank you for your uh, response to that, because um, I think that uh, in some ways, um, in in my opinion, as a, as a believer, I think in some ways, uh, broadly speaking, it's almost as if we're trying to leave God behind. Um, as believers, we acknowledge that God created created this universe, created this world, and then put natural courses uh, in line. And then those are the sort of things that we're studying. But as believers, we know where it started. But um, speaking generally, I think uh, we're trying to leave God out of the picture now, leave him behind somehow. But anyway, um, moving on, on from that, I, I pick up in your book quite a bit and um, some of my own general knowledge as well. But... Um, the during the middle ages uh the churchmen were very useful to monarchs and to the nobility in general would you like to talk to that a little bit and explain why that was and how how it how it worked for them well i think um a large part of it was simply uh about money churchmen tended okay. to be well educated and certainly better educated than, than 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 the average people because the church had the resources to um to to educate it, it, its servants which which it did uh, there was no rule that said that you had to be a churchman to to get a decent education it was just that uh um as far as most of the nobility was concerned a decent education involved um being very good at um bashing your opponents over the head with a sword uh, which was of limited use if you were interested in um, administration and taxation and such like. So churchmen were the people whose whose education tended to um, be towards uh, um, those sorts of aspects, reading and writing, grammar, rhetoric, maths, other things which, which were useful for administration. But another reason that uh, um, the monarchy liked to use churchmen is they were effectively free. They were free labor for the monarch. The monarch didn't yes. have to pay them. Yes. Um, the church, uh, the churchmen uh, would have uh, their own positions as, say, bishops or such like, and they would have um, income from from their, their parishes or, or, or from, from their diocese. And, and as a result, they were um, almost, if you like, independently wealthy, and the monarch didn't have to pay them to do the job of being a Lord Chancellor or advisor or, or anything else. Um, and he didn't have to worry um, yes, about yes. them wanting to assert the monarch's position either, because as churchmen, they, they, um, they couldn't officially uh, have legitimate children, they couldn't start a dynasty, they couldn't uh, assert the, the position of, 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 of the monarch or the nobility. Um, so that kind of made them um, fairly perfect as far as uh, being high-ranking uh, servants was concerned. Yes, I find that a fascinating uh, part of the era. Uh, moving on to something that others may see as controversial, but I think it's interesting to talk about. And I think um, no matter what side of the fence you might sit on as far as religion goes, I think we should have an honest discussion about things like the following question. But 
In your opinion, did the Reformation diminish the work of Catholic discoveries? Well, of course, everything everything uh, to do with medieval science was was being done by Catholics, of course, because uh, yes. Protestantism didn't didn't um, really exist until the 16th century. And uh, it is the case, I think, that um, one aspect of Protestantism was to try to um, step back um, past the Middle Ages, back to um, back to the early church um, and to try and uh, rediscover um, a sort of a purer form of Christianity before it was corrupted by wealth and, and, and other uh, things during the, um, during the Middle Ages. Um, and, and that, I think, um, did mean that, to some extent, um, a fair amount of um, babies were thrown out with the bathwater. Um, and a lot of the, the important um, progress of the Middle Ages was um, to some extent, disparaged by Protestant commentators. Um, and that's really how we got to the idea, for instance, that, that people in the Middle Ages thought the earth was flat. That was um, originally Protestant uh, propaganda against um, uh, Catholic uh, medieval superstition, as, as, as they saw it. And one of the most um, harmful aspects, I suppose, of, of the combination of um, the Protestant Reformation and, and humanism, uh, as it's called, which was a which was an obsession with, with ancient Greece and ancient Rome, was the way that a lot of the intellectual achievements of the Middle Ages were, were forgotten. Lots and lots of manuscripts at the time were just thrown away because nobody was particularly interested in them anymore. Uh, and then printed books came along, which meant that the manuscripts were, were difficult to read in comparison as well. Um, so that did mean that there was this, um, this period in the 16th, 17th centuries when um, the Middle Ages became deeply untrendy, so to speak, um, was something that, that uh, the intellectuals at the time um, really weren't terribly interested in, at least in Protestant countries. So I think there was a case that uh, um, the advances of medieval science were, to, um, to some extent, forgotten. Um, and part of the effect of that meant that we've tended to exaggerate the importance of scientific advances during the so-called scientific revolution, the work of people like Copernicus and Galileo. Um, and we've, we've um, lost sight of the fact that they were building on, on medieval foundations uh, and arguments that were used by Copernicus about relative motion, why we can't feel the earth moving, arguments that we, and mathematical formula which were used by Galileo to describe um, falling objects. They all came from the Middle Ages, and, and we can be almost pretty certain that uh, they were, were copied directly by people like Copernicus and Galileo. And But because they didn't say where they were getting their ideas from, because saying you got your ideas from the Middle Ages was, uh, um, you know, just not the done thing at the time, we lost sight of, of medieval science for a very long time, right the way up until um, uh, the 20th century, when we, we realised uh, and began to uncover the work that, that Galileo and Copernicus had been had been building on. So that that's really why... The subtitle of my book is, is, is how the foundations of modern science were laid in the Middle Ages because the foundations of the work of medieval scientists um, really were built upon by the more famous scientists of the, uh, of the um, 16th and 17th centuries. And, and uh, the, the work of their medieval predecessors was very largely forgotten. Yes, and I, I, I think I agree. And um, we have to uh, point out that... Uh, um, the the use of the term dark ages is definitely a misnomer once you go back and have a look at the 
uh, the discoveries and the learning that was continuing all through that era that we call the Middle Ages. Um, it's not as if learning uh, came to a halt, you know, with the fall of Rome and then it was sort of rediscovered, you know, approximately a thousand years later. Um, so much was going on. And, and as you've just taken us through there, we can see that uh, it, it was being built on as as time went on and again uh, with the Reformation and the Renaissance and all of that. Without the um, discoveries and uh, understanding of what went before them, we probably wouldn't have ended up where we are today. So um, I no longer use the term dark ages. Well, I think I think um, the, the the main the main point I think um, about the book. Well, I suppose there are two two main points which which um, I, I think are worth um, highlighting. The first is that what the book is intended to do is, as you say, to rehabilitate the, the Middle Ages and to show that the Middle Ages were an age of, of, of progress and reason and inventiveness and not some dark age of superstition. Right. Um, right. I suppose another thing that, that the book is intended to do um, is to show that this, this idea that there's a great conflict between science and religion is, is just, just completely false and that um, throughout the Middle Ages and, and, and early modern period, science and religion um, got on very well and, indeed, um, Christianity... Uh, was it was a huge support um, for science, and, and even though there were um, disputes now and again on, on on particular aspects, we we need to sort of look at the big picture, and the big picture does show uh, that uh, modern science, as we knew it as we as we know it, um, arose in in in, um, in in Christian civilization, and if Christianity was somehow opposed to science, it's very hard to see why. Um, that would have happened, given that modern science hasn't arisen anywhere else um, in the world or, or, or in history. So, I think uh, the second, the second sort of take-home point, maybe from the book, is that science and religion um, aren't in opposition. And uh, whenever we hear examples um, in the news or, or coming from a new atheist like Richard Dawkins about how science and religion are supposedly um, to fighting each other, I think we need to they'll be quite sceptical about that and we need to uh, look at the background and see if they've got their facts right and see if really the argument they're making actually holds up under scrutiny because 99 times out of 100 it doesn't. Wonderful, wonderful. A couple of wonderful points, a wonderful book. Um, can, James, can you tell people where can, uh, people can find your book and, uh, and where your website is on the internet, please? Well, my website is at uh, jameshannam.com. Um, that's all one word, and and uh, the book uh, God's Philosophers uh, is is most, probably most easily um, available uh, on on Amazon uh, or or on Kindle, depending on on how you uh, like to partake in a reading matter. Right, and I have both versions. I'm proud to say, um, Dr. James Hannum, thank you for joining us for a second time on Like Flint Radio. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I want to say thank you to Andy for her help in the production of this episode. Get the book. I think you'll get a lot out of it. And I want to send a big good day to all our listeners in Canada who have been listening to us in ever-increasing numbers. Thank you all, and a special hello to those of you who are in Vancouver. Okay, now remember, you can find us on the web at www.likeflintradio.com. Go to our archive there. You can find past shows from Futurequake South Africa, Futurequake Southern Hemisphere, and, of course, Like Flint Radio. If you want to email me, you can email me at gk at likeflintradio.com. That's just all lowercase, gk at likeflintradio.com. I'm your host, GK, and until next time, God bless and hooroo.